If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. Today we continue our podcast series counting down the top five of history's greatest mysteries, which you voted for in our online poll. In fourth place on the list is Why Did the Roanoke Colony Vanish Into Thin Air? That was nominated by the historian Malcolm Gaskill, who was unfortunately unable to speak to us for this episode. So instead we caught up with Misha Ewan, a historian of the early modern Atlantic world based at the University of Manchester. Joining her to discuss the mysterious fate of this 16th century English colony was our world history editor, Matt Helton. Could you very briefly um, outline what the mystery is that we're talking about uh, in this interview? So the mystery of Roanoke and the lost colonists refers to a settlement of 118 men, women and children that was established in what is today North Carolina in 1587. The mystery is about the fact that when leaders of the settlement returned in 1519 to resupply the colonists, they had entirely disappeared. And since then, Historians have been trying to figure out what might have happened to these people, whether they were killed or whether they might have assimilated with local Native American populations. What was the sort of political situation in both America and England at the time that this was happening? So at this time in North America, there are no permanent European colonies established at this time. But in the Caribbean and in South America, Spain has a vast empire in Mexico and Peru. So the English really are trying to establish their own foothold in the Americas through the establishment of this colony at Roanoke. And the background to this is ongoing rivalry between Protestant England and Catholic Spain. Elizabeth has been on the throne for about 30 years, so she's really at the height of her power. But increasingly, tension between England and Spain is mounting. And in 1588, Spain actually attempts to invade England with the Spanish Armada. So this is what's going on in the background at this time. So increasingly, it seems urgent to English Protestants that they should also 
have permanent settlements in North America in order to challenge Spanish imperial dominance in the region, in order to convert Native Americans to Protestantism, in order to supply England with the natural riches and resources that they hope they're going to find in North America. And and how does this colony fit into the history of colonies in America? So at this time, English have no, the English have no permanent settlements in North America, but they have been to the region. So they first um, go in 1584 to explore this area around North Carolina, where the Roanoke settlement is established. For several decades as well, the English have been fishing in the waters around Newfoundland, in Canada, for cod. So they are familiar with the region, but they haven't yet actually managed to establish any permanent settlements. But of course, there are Spanish settlements nearby in the Caribbean. And it's essentially from the eastern coast of North America that the English imagine that they might be able to take advantage of their position by attacking Spanish shipping in the Caribbean and generate wealth through privateering and piracy. It would potentially be significant from that point of view um, in terms of, you know, tactics in being able to try and um, rival Spain in, in that region, essentially. Um, and who who was selected to go on this uh, expedition? So the first expedition in 1585 is made up of around 600 men. And in the end, about 108 individuals remain in Roanoke. They're led by an individual named Ralph Lane, but amongst them, it's, it's a variety of artisans. So people like coopers and shoemakers and carpenters, but also metallurgists who are going to test ore samples there and look for precious metals. But amongst their number are two individuals who become very significant in early English colonial um, enterprise, John White and Thomas Harriet. So John White was an artist who essentially produces some of the first images, English images that we have of Native Americans in North America. And Thomas Harriet is a scientist and mathematician, and they both both on their return to England, are very important in promoting English colonisation to the public more broadly. Um, They write texts and these images circulate widely and essentially a kind of, it's the first sort of propaganda that the English um, have for colonisation in North America. This first expedition is men only, but when they return in 1587, the focus then is establishing a more civilian settlement. And amongst the number then are women and children as well. So the kind of character of the settlement changes over that period. And what was life like in this, this new world that they'd arrived in? So when the English arrive, one of the first things that they try to do is try to establish relations with the local Native American population. And they do this with mixed success. So they are trying to establish trade in things like animal skins. And some of that is friendly and they exchange gifts and objects. But there are also skirmishes that break out um, with some of the local groups. And this sometimes erupts into quite violent encounters. Um, But essentially what they're trying to do is establish whether colonisation is going to be economically profitable 
So they don't spend too much of their time, um, you know, trying to grow crops and things like that. Instead, they're looking, um, searching for kind of mineral wealth, um, these mines that they've heard of that, you know, they'll be able to extract gold and silver from. But a lot of this, obviously, these encounters involves trying to learn more about the land and the people that inhabit it and the language. And one of the things that they do is take captives back to England with them. So in 1584, two individuals called Mantio and Wanchis are taken by the settlers and brought back to England. And Thomas Harriet um, lives with them, tries to learn their language, and he actually creates an Algonquian dictionary. So I guess we have this impression of the English of trying to learn more about the people and the land and the culture and language that they've encountered in the new world. And what did they make of the native people and uh, vice versa? What do the native people make of them? Do we know? So the people that inhabited um, this part of the eastern seaboard were familiar with Europeans to some extent, you know, passing sailors and people who were exploring this part of the country. So when the English arrived, it wasn't entirely um, unexpected. They had some familiarity with, with European encounters and they knew to expect that maybe that there would be trade relations. But increasingly... The Native Americans begin to see the English as a threat to their way of life and they're encroaching increasingly on their land. And this does lead to violent conflict. In 1585, they kill the leader of the Sakawatan. Um, the chief is named Wingina and they actually behead him. And I think we need to understand that it's yeah, it's it's a, a complex relationship that the English are very much trying to extract something from the the Native American population, but that's not always being met with cooperation. Something else I had no idea about was the extent to which people travel backwards and forwards from England to America. So I think a couple of years later, um, someone travels back to England because things are going badly. Is is that right? That's correct. So the first settlement in 1585 is around 100 men and and they return um, the same year with Sir Francis Drake back to England to try and gather more supplies with the intention of returning. Um, The second settlement in 1587 that is made up of men, women and children, again, the same thing happens, that the leaders return to England to try and gather more supplies, but they're prevented from returning to Roanoke due to bad weather, but also a stay of shipping in England because of conflict with Spain and the Spanish Armada. So I guess... um, it was never intended that, you know, people would, would go and, and never leave. They would constantly have to come back for new supplies because at this time they don't have the ability to, you know, make all of the food and clothes and everything that they're going to need to, you know, keep people going. So they would be very much reliant on these sort of new supplies being brought from England. But because of, you know, all these reasons to do with conflict and, and climate, it's not always possible. And it's 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 when they return that the mystery starts to unfold, isn't it? So in 1590, John White attempts to return to Roanoke um, to go and resupply the settlers that had been left there in 1587. But for several years, he's been prevented from doing that. In Roanoke is his daughter, Eleanor, and his granddaughter as well, Virginia Dare. So for him, this is not just kind of political, it's also very personal. But when they arrive, they find that the settlers have completely vanished, but there are some clues that have been left behind. 
apparently before he left, John White instructed them that if they ever had to leave, that they should leave a clue behind for them, you know, carve a name into a, a tree of where they had gone. And White finds that on one of the trees, they have carved the letters C-R-O. And this refers to the Croatan people. So he starts to guess that maybe that's where they've gone. They've gone to seek shelter. One of the reasons that they might have gone to seek shelter with the Croatan people is that one of the English allies, Mantio, was actually from from that area. So there was already kind of good relations between the English and the um, native inhabitants there. Um, what White also um, remarks upon, though, is the fact that they did not carve a cross into um, the tree. And he had instructed them that if they ever had to leave under sort of urgent circumstances, that a cross should be used to show that they were in distress. And there's no sign of that. So he assumes that actually that they left, they weren't under distress and that maybe they've gone and simply assimilated with the Native American population. I mean, that's so interesting because the idea of finding sort of a half-carved message in a tree is almost stereotypically enigmatic. Like, I can see why that's led to so much speculation. Um, Were there any other clues at all about what had happened? So White, in his um, later narrative that was published in 1600, he says that he'd found that, yeah, they had buried some of their chests with some of their belongings and that books had been left scattered behind so he knows that some of their belongings have been left, but at that site, at that stage, there's still no further clues about what might have happened to the settlers. But when settlers re- returned to this region, sort of a generation later in the early 1600s, the colonists at Jamestown, which is about 100 miles north, they report that they've heard from some of their Native American allies that there are English settlers who had survived. And they try and go and search for them. They send out search parties in 1608 and again in 1609, but they find no sign of these supposed English survivors. But again, you can kind of imagine that these rumours do circulate, that they might have survived and that they have assimilated with Native American communities and continued to thrive in that area. So one of the theories is that these colonists survived and started new lives with the Indigenous people. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's actually this part of the story is one of the reasons that it has continued to intrigue historians so much because obviously you know this is one of the first attempts to establish a permanent English settlement in North America and although it wasn't successful you know within a generation they have succeeded and we have Jamestown and later the Plymouth Colony so the fact that we have this earlier story and there are, there are two things about Roanoke that I think are, are very sort of interesting and you know probably the reasons why it has been mythologized so much in American culture one is that Virginia Dare, who is born um, in Roanoke. She's the daughter of Eleanor, who is in turn the daughter of John White. She's the first English child to be born in North America. I think it's given rise to lots of ideas about the origins of white American identity. And over time, unfortunately, this kind of story of Roanoke has been sort of um, used by white supremacists to, you know, harken back to an origin story of, of, of whiteness in America. And this assimilation with Native American communities has been sort of twisted sometimes um, by scholars over centuries who have said that, you know, there's no way that these white English settlers would have assimilated with 
sort of Native Americans, um, especially in the in the 20th and early 21st centuries, this story of Roanoke gained a lot more traction. I think it was at a time when increasingly white Americans were feeling fearful of, of immigration to the country and asking questions about, you know, whether immigrants and Native Americans should have rights. And Virginia Dare became this sort of symbol of whiteness in America. I think that's one reason why historians have continued to be interested in Roanoke, to try and unpick some of that complexity about American identity and culture and, you know, where it stems from. But I think also... I guess it's a good story as well, this idea that, you know, and, and you know, and, and for historians who have, you know, different kinds of, um, you know, motivations who are interested in early co- colonisation and cross-cultural encounters, it's really fascinating to, you know, think of what it might have meant for those colonists to have gone and been embraced by a Native American community and assimilated and, and, and what the mixing of those two cultures might have looked like. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But I do think it's interesting to ask questions about why it continues to interest archaeologists and historians so much. We want to think more critically about myths of the origins of America and American exceptionalism. I'm fascinated by the way in which America still to some extent sort of harkens back to these foundational myths um, and which they inform subsequent ways in which it sees itself as a as a country. So do you think that this had lasting power in America in a way that perhaps we don't quite understand in Britain? I think certainly. And another way that we see this as well is in the way that the Jamestown colony has been remembered. So Jamestown was settled in 1607. And as I mentioned, John Smith, who's one of the early governors, does try to go out and seek the lost colony colonists of Roanoke. He sends out these, um, these search parties for them. But Jamestown is also sometimes buried within the American origin story because it's seen as being a failed colony. There's starvation, there's cannibalism, there's famine. So it's seen as being a disaster rather than a success story. But then in 1620, the Plymouth colonists arrive, you know, the Pilgrims, the Mayflower, and that is often seen as being the founding origin story of America. So it's interesting to think about the ways that Jamestown and even earlier than that, Roanoke fits into this sort of longer sort of trajectory of the foundation of English North America. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the way that these settlements have been pitched against each other as perceived failures and successes. Um, But ultimately, Roanoke was influential for the settlements that came later in terms of mapping out that part of North America. You know, it was the first time that the name Virginia was coined for that region. And although ultimately it failed and the colonists dispersed and disappeared, it did at least give English settlers some sense of what it might look like to try and establish a colony there. And some of those 
you know, some of that survived in terms of, you know, how they thought about building forts and the manner in which, you know, forts and settlements would be physically established, but also an understanding that you could not have a successful permanent settlement with men alone, that it would be important to send women and children, and also that it would also be essential to try to establish good relations with the local Native American population. But as you can imagine, time and again, they do make the same mistakes that, you know, sometimes relations with the local population breaks down and often this is because of things like you know pressure on Native American food supplies because the English fail to you know harvest their own crops. What was the reaction to the disappearance when these colonists returned to England? There's not too much in terms of you know what is written down reactions to Roanoke at the time but we do know that it's something that John White for the rest of his life agonizes about because obviously he's left behind his daughter and his granddaughter so for him it's an incredibly personal loss but what we do see is that at the turn of the century as interest in colonization in Virginia is starting to increase again and you know in 1606 the Virginia company is chartered and in 1607 Jamestown is established that there are references to Roanoke in the sort of rider cultural landscape so there's a play called Eastwood Ho which is performed for the first time in 1605 and in there they kind of make jokes about these lost colonists who are said to now be living amongst the native population so although that's a good 20 years later the fact that it appears in this play tells us that it probably has been there in the sort of English psyche you know over the preceding couple of decades that it's something that people more widely know about and have talked about and of course by then there have been other publications such as Richard Hakloyt's Principal Voyages which is published in 1600 and that includes John White's account of settlement in Roanoke so these things are happening at the turn of the century where I think there's an increased wider cultural interest in attempting to establish colonies again in the new world so it's something that people are aware of in those circles um, and it's having yeah an impact on culture more broadly. Were there any other theories um, about what had happened other than the fact they had uh, started these new lives? I guess a kind of grimmer theory was just that, you know, they hadn't survived and hadn't assimilated. Has there been any um, subsequent archaeological discoveries or new evidence um, as to what might have happened? Yeah, so... I guess the first real breakthrough in the search for the lost colonists and the Roanoke um, settlement came in the 1990s when archaeologists discovered um, the site of um, the workshop of the metallurgist um, who was a German metallurgist where he'd been conducting his experiments and they found things there like crucibles and jars that had been used in his scientific experiments as well. So that was a major breakthrough because this evidence very much, you know, um, located the site to the late 16th century and they could confidently sort of they could confidently identify that this was Roanoke based on the written evidence we have as well, that we know that metallurgists went with with um, the settlers in 1585. But one of the next major breakthroughs was in 2012 when John White's map, one of John White's maps in the British Museum was looked at again and conservationists there actually um, 
found that under a flap of paper on the map, they revealed that there was a star shape that might have referred to another settlement um, where the colonists might have gone after leaving Roanoke. And this um, site is in Hatteras Island. And since 2012, archaeologists have been excavating there for material. And they have found Elizabethan and 17th century artefacts. It's not clear, however, whether these are things that would have belonged to the Roanoke colonists themselves or things that might have been you know, brought later by English settlers in the mid-17th century or things that might have been passed down. So there is continuing interest in trying to excavate sites in the area, but so far there haven't been, there's no definitive evidence of what happened to the settlers or indeed where the Roanoke site itself might have been. But one way to contextualise this archaeological work is to think about the Jamestown settlement. And for a long time, archaeologists thought that that had been lost, that, you know, because of erosion and, you know, um, hurricanes that perhaps they would never find the original site of the Jamestown colony but actually in the 1990s that was also discovered so there is still hope that Roanoke that where the settlement was you know could still be found um so archaeologists do continue today to try and look for it what would your take be on what happened do you subscribe to the theory that um these people survived or do you think it's the bleaker the bleaker alternative believe that some of them might have survived I think as well we do perhaps need to give some credence to reports from the 17th century where these colonists do say that they had spoken to Native American allies who report that they have seen English settlers or the descendants of English people people who reported to have fair coloured hair and grey eyes And much later, in around 1700, there's an individual um, who also goes to the region and he speaks to people from Hatteras Island. And he talks about, they make claims themselves that they are, are descended from English colonists. So these stories have obviously been passed down through Native American oral histories as well. And I think if we're going to take those oral histories seriously, then it is possible that some of the colonists did survive and did assimilate. So, yeah, I'm kind of optimistic that that perhaps is the case. But I, I guess when thinking about Roanoke and its history, I find it interesting I wonder whether the question shouldn't be so much, you know, did they survive, but why is it that we're still so interested and why is it so important in American history and culture? And I think actually that's where some of the really sort of interesting, complex scholarship, you know. Those are uh, two excellent questions. I'm going to shamelessly steal them from you. Um, what, what, what do you think this episode tells us about um, the wider history of the time and America more generally? So I think in terms of what it tells us about English colonial history at the time, I think it really brings attention to the fact that, you know, the birth of an English empire was never inevitable. And it wasn't something that seemed inevitable to people at the time. There were these false starts, there were a series of failures. So whilst now we look back on, you know, the history of the British Empire and before that, the English Empire, which did 
begin and have its origins in North America. To people at the time, there was no guarantee of success. And these ventures were incredibly risky. So I think it reminds us as historians to be, you know, sceptical about thinking about, you know, the inevitability of, of the rise of English imperial power. Because, you know, at the time, English, compared to its Catholic, Spanish, Portuguese rivals was incredibly inferior on the global stage. You know, they had no colonial settlements and Roanoke was really the first attempt at that. But yeah, it was a catastrophic failure. In terms of what it means for our understanding of American history, I think it brings out interesting questions as we've discussed about the origins of white American identity. The birth of Virginia Dare is still remembered as this significant event, but I think it draws attention away from the fact that there was already, you know, communities of people living in North America at this time. And I sometimes wonder if by focusing so much on what happened to the lost colonists that we forget to talk about the impact that English colonisation had on Native American populations and people, the consequences of which they're still suffering from today as well. Um, And it is still of critical importance to debates that are going on in America about the recognition of certain Native American tribes. So I'm kind of sceptical, I guess, about focusing too much on the myths of Roanoke, but I do think it's interesting to ask questions about why it continues to interest archaeologists and historians so much. But I imagine that some of that is because we want to think more critically about myths of the origins of America and American exceptionalism and also colonisation as well. Finally, then, I suppose on that note, how would you like people to make sense of this specific mystery in terms of its actual importance to sort of wider wider history, I suppose? So I think understanding the history of Roanoke is really important in order to understand the wider context of English colonisation in the late 16th and early 17th centuries and understand, you know, some of the ways that English colonists are learning lessons and sometimes the ways in which they're not learning lessons from this very early attempt at colonisation. And I think actually looking at Roanoke can help us understand a lot more about the wider European imperial context at this time as well. You know, why was this particular site chosen? Who were the individuals who were involved? And by picking apart some of those questions, we can begin to understand a bit more about the religious and political climate at the time and also what European understandings of colonisation were. But the emphasis was often on commercial gains and why North America was seen as being this place that would offer such riches to European imperial powers. That was Misha Ewan. You can read Malcolm Gaskill's original nomination, as well as all 19 others, on our website at historyextra.com forward slash greatest dash mystery. And that's about it for today. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll return tomorrow when we'll be revealing what came in third in our poll of history's greatest mysteries. (laughs) 
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.